continuing our series of commentaries on the Gospels and other scriptural references also. Um, this, in my mind, this commentary, this series of commentaries is all tied up with a much larger plan or vision, whatever you want to call it, in which the universal spiritual tradition, which we know in its perhaps purest form is Sant but which has existed, as we know, in many other forms and many other places, all over the world and down through time, my ultimate vision is to make it very, very plain to the Western world that this is not an exotic import. This is not something that is connected with Indian culture, per se, although in the form of Sant it has, of course, come to be united with that culture, but that in its essence, it is the essence of all cultures, including our own, and that in the Western tradition, this same teaching has manifested itself actually in a number of different ways. One of them, perhaps the most directly influential, is in through the biblical Judeo-Christian straightforward tradition, um, which is what we are exploring now. Another way, another way in which it has manifested itself is in the through the Arthurian legend and the Grail mythos, which is also a tremendously profound, very spiritual in its essence, and tremendously influential um, body of legend, or whatever we want to call it, which perhaps we can go into to some extent when we're through the Gospels also. Um, and then there are a number of very extraordinary people who may or may not have had direct connection with uh, one or another esoteric school who have come in the last several hundred years and usually utilizing one or another of the main legends out of the past or the main bodies of myth or religious tradition have forged anew, you might say, for the modern world, the modern Western world, uh, the same truth in their own way. And these are the people that the masters quote frequently and they are the ones whom Master Kripal Singh was referring to when he said that poets were half-saints. These people are not, of course, complete saints in that they were not fully realized beings. But they were people whose eyes were open, who saw a great deal, who expressed what they saw, and who therefore left an invaluable record of the continual and eternal recurrence of these basic truths. And the, I mentioned last week the play that we are God willing, we'll put on this week. And this play, which is a reworking of the poetry of William Blake, is very much a part of the same overall picture. I hope before I'm through, Master's will, of course, up to him, but as I see it now, um, this is something that I think is a very important thing to do, is to tie up a lot of strings and to make it very plain in such a way that people cannot reject any part of the highest 
teaching on the grounds that it's not their own, that it is not found in their own tradition, in their own highest values, in their own scriptures. And all of these things are connected together, at least in my view. I did discuss both this Gospel Commentary series and also the play with Sanchi quite a bit last winter when I was there. And the larger view, you might say, actually came to me after I had talked with him and as a result of our talks, you might say. But uh, piecemeal, I did discuss it with him. And he was extremely, I would say, enthusiastic that this should and must be done. So I think that uh, it's an important part of, of what Master called proclaiming it from the rooftops. In other words, it all depends. We can go around saying at the top of our lungs that the Master is God and then be surprised when people don't seem to care much. Or we can, uh, you know, obviously first thing is to live up to what the Masters say, put it in practice in our lives so that our lives will show some difference and then uh, make some efforts, just as all Masters have done, to show the people around us um, in what way what we are saying has connection with them. It's a basic psychological point, I would say. Okay. Now, I want to continue some more about John the Baptist um, and then proceed further. Uh, someone asked me, either last week or the week before, if I was planning to get into the Essenes at all. And uh, I actually said no, but I wasn't thinking very carefully at the time, uh, because today we will get into them quite a bit. And certain parts of the Gospels, especially as referred, referring to John the Baptist, are unintelligible, I would say, without some knowledge of the conditions that were prevailing in Palestine at the time. And it's almost, if we understand what was going on, it almost revolutionized. In fact, I would say it does revolutionize our understanding of um, of the things that the Bible is saying. Because we have to remember, there are two factors to bear in mind here. One is that the original people who told these stories, many of the basic facts were taken for granted by them. Just as when we write down an account of something that happened, we don't go into detail and explain what a car is, what kind of heating is going on in the house, uh, how far Tilton is from Sandmanton, for example. If we know that we're writing for people who don't know those things, then we would do it. But uh, to a great extent, we do assume that what we take for granted, other people will take for granted. And this is truer the less education we have, the less sophistication we have. And the other thing, which is a direct, which is directly opposite from that, but is connected, is the people who are writing something, who are dealing with records which have come to them from before a big change, in other words, which which reflect conditions that no longer prevail, are usually, unless they have a very careful education and are really un, unusually knowledgeable in these kinds of things, are usually unable to fill in the gaps. In other words, they don't know 
how to, in some cases they can't help it because they don't have the knowledge, how to adjust for the changes in history so that what we have uh, as a written record coming, say, from before 70 A.D., when interpreted by people living, say, in 110 A.D., uh, in, the, in, the, in, in between those two dates, the Palestinian world changed forever in a, in a very drastic way. And uh, the combination of people taking for granted the conditions that prevailed in the first instance, and so they didn't include any reference to many of them, and the inability of the people in the second instance to understand what the records conveyed other than in their own terms, in the terms of their own civilization, uh, put together means that in some cases the, the gospel records, as with all ancient records, are almost incomprehensible unless we have some knowledge of the, uh, of the general background. This is true of whenever we try to understand any ancient tradition. If you look at Indian scripture, you will find that according to the Indian uh, books, the sacred books, you'd think that Indian culture never changed at all from the beginning right up till uh, historical times. We still have the same caste system, uh, this and that, going projected back into periods that are hundreds of thousands of years back. And this is, is not common sense. I mean, very few civil Indian civilization has shown a tremendous staying power, that's true, but it's it defies, you know, a logic to assume that it has remained unchanged for millions of years. Whatever we know about the Sat Yuga, which is nothing, but whatever we do know about it, we know that the conditions that prevailed then would have to be different than the conditions that prevail now. But um, that is not obvious to people who have not thought like that or been trained to think like that. It's not obvious to people in general that conditions change. And even someone as knowledgeable and sophisticated as Shakespeare, when he wrote his plays, often did not take into consideration historical differences. He did when he was in possession of specific facts, but he did not if he was not. He assumed that things that prevailed in his culture had prevailed in all cultures. So it's a general thing. Anyway, this is all in reference to the fact that many of the things, I'm going to cover just a couple of points today, or possibly more, but at least a couple of points, of things that have direct result to what I've just been saying, which refer to both John the Baptist and Jesus. And they're cases in point of how uh, not knowing the basic conditions that prevailed at the time the events occurred, we can get a very distorted picture of what is meant by a straightforward record. For example, um, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 80, referring to John the Baptist, he says, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. Now, for a couple of thousand years, that verse was taken to mean that John the Baptist was what? Was How was he brought up? He was taken out into the wilderness and abandoned? It seems that way. That's the seems to be the sense of the verse. Wilderness means desert, of course, as it does in Rajasthan, so it does in Palestine. Uh, it was definitely a desert area that is meant there. So what does that mean? He was in the desert. The, the, that, that verse comes right after uh, his birth. 
And the implication is, perhaps not, that's perhaps not what's being said, but it's implied, that he was taken out at an early age and, and put in the desert somewhere. Well, with the discovery in the late 40s of what are called the Dead Sea Scrolls, it became very obvious that in the region of the Dead Sea, um, in fact, just a very few miles away from where John the Baptist ended up baptizing, uh, was a monastery of people who might as well be called Essenes as anything else, that presumably uh, this is what they were, who lived in the wilderness a very ascetic life and who, among other things, practiced a water baptism as a sign of a new life. And there are many other things, too. Uh, the teaching, in fact, of the people in the Essene monastery in this place was astoundingly similar to the teaching of both John the Baptist and of Jesus. So much so that when these scrolls were first discovered, among the scholars who had to do with it, there was a raging controversy as to whether or not this was a Christian sect that was being described. And many, many scholars really pushed hard for a date that was after the life of Christ, for the founding of this monastery and the writing of these scrolls, because the things that were described there were unpleasantly close to the teachings of Christ to have come before him, if he was indeed one of a kind. Many, many of the concerns that are in the Gospels are found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. In some cases, there are almost exact parallels of writing about a similar, a similar thing. And uh, both the use of baptism and of sacramental meal, the eating of bread, uh, and the fact that the monastery had been founded by someone whom they were the scrolls refer to as the teacher of righteousness, a very great holy man whom they looked up to, and to whom they applied the term Messiah, which if you recall I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, that that was not applied only to one person originally, but that it did have, it could be applied to more than one person. And that this person had apparently died a martyr's death. And they were expecting others to come. All of this is, is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the parallels between that and the New Testament are obvious. And therefore, it was very difficult for many scholars to accept all of a sudden after this time that this could come, have happened before the time allotted to the historical life and death of Jesus. So they said, no, it must refer to a Christian sect. These must be Christian writings, and it must have happened afterwards. Some of them even went so far as to place them at seven or 800 A.D., but that has been conclusively disproven. The sect itself was destroyed when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in the year 70 A.D., but the, uh, the writings were written long before that, and the monastery had been in existence for about 200 years at that time. These things are now known, and they have been proven through sophisticated dating techniques and so forth. So we have, in the very same area of Palestine, where John the Baptist and Jesus were preaching, we have um, a monastery or a community. Monastery perhaps is not the best word. In, in the way they lived, the Essenes were probably more like the Shakers than any other community that we might be familiar with, in that they lived together, they did not marry, 
or have children, they were chaste, but they uh, lived together in community very much as the Shakers did. Um, they were not, in other words, formal renunciate monks. Um, and neither did they live in the world. Although they may... Well, many of these names that we use, and this we'll run into also too, even some of the terms that come from India and the Middle East, like yogi and Sufi, even Mahatma, are very generic terms. They cover a lot of ground. Sadhu, for example, can mean uh, can mean a fully realized master. It can mean someone who has reached the third plane. Or it can mean someone who has reached nowhere except that he wears a yellow robe and goes around begging. All those meanings are, are can be found in the term sadhu, and the masters use them in all those ways. And the same is true of yogi. <coughs> Sufi, Gnostic, can cover a lot of ground, and Essene can cover a lot of ground. And apparently there were a lot of differences among Essenes. Some of them we know from contemporary accounts were definitely vegetarians. Others may not have been. We don't know for sure that they were. Um, all of them seem to have rejected the temple sacrifice, the sacrificial ritual in the temple, which is a very significant thing because, of course, that involved the daily slaughter of many animals. This was supposed to be the thing that was most pleasing to God, was the daily slaughter in the temple, common to all ancient religions, not just Judaism, but also including Judaism. And uh, the Essenes apparently, in fact, certainly did reject this and remained aloof from the temple. So the discovery, of, although the, it has already always been known that there were Essenes, because they are mentioned by many historical observers, there are a number of very complete accounts of them, and similar effect, uh, similar sect, like them, who may have been connected with them, like the Therapeutae in Egypt, who are also Jewish and who are strict vegetarians and look very similar to the Essenes. Um, until the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, the, the closeness and the proximity between them and the founders of Christianity had never been guessed. And it was very difficult for some people, and other people uh, immediately concluded that both John the Baptist and Jesus were Essenes, although they do not appear to have been strictly orthodox Essenes. And I think that that conclusion is probably correct if we allow for the fact that Essene is a generic term and that uh, there were, just as we could say, well, the master is a yogi, as opposed to, say, uh, someone who doesn't practice any kind of systematic meditation, um, in the sense that Shabda Yoga is a yoga, obviously the masters of that yoga are yogis. In another sense, um, it's not an appropriate way to describe them. Thus, in, uh, with those kind of reservations, I think it's true that, that John the Baptist and Jesus definitely came out of and belonged to the Essene viewpoint among the Judaism of their day, and that a lot that's in the Bible that is not does not become clear becomes clear if we recognize that this is a, a relatively large movement that is existing uh, in Palestine at this time, that uh, they have a lot of the ideas that are being taught by both John and Jesus are taught by them. The idea of holy men is, uh, is grasped by them, that they have had already at least one teacher, perhaps more, 
whom they referred to as the Messiah, uh, whom they considered to be a messenger of God, and who had died um, a martyr's death, and so forth. Understanding this, and also who baptized as a some kind of ritual, okay, who used the water baptism. This probably explains why John the Baptist adopted uh, baptism as his, you might say, his outer bridge between the inner initiation and the people to whom he was giving that initiation to. The Essenes having been around a, a, a long time, the idea of baptism was not unknown to the Jewish people of that day. Now, the, new, the reason this connects with what I said earlier is that the New Testament does not mention these scenes once. Never. There's no reference to these scenes throughout the New Testament. There were four sects that we know of that were very influential in, in, the, in that time, in the Judaism of that time. Three of them are mentioned in the New Testament, two of them a great deal. The fourth, the Essenes are not mentioned at all. The three that are mentioned, the Sadducees, are the priests. Okay, they are the descendants of the priestly class. They are in control of the temple and its ritual. They are primarily not religious people. They are establishment figures in every sense of the world, of the word. Uh, politicians people who are in control. They do not believe in an afterlife and they don't believe in the oral law. They do believe in the written law, which they consider to be the only authentic Torah. Now, the second sect, the Pharisees, which developed um, outside of the priesthood, it was a it was in its origins was a common a movement of the common people who wanted more spiritual understanding, developed in addition to the written law of the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, what are called the five books of Moses in the King James Version. In addition to that, they developed a very extensive oral law. And because they were trying to adapt the conditions which the law of Moses originally was designed to meet, they were trying to adapt that law to the conditions of their day. Many of the laws as prescribed in the Law of Moses were obsolete, and many others referred to specifically the temple ritual rather than to the behavior of the human being. And the third group that is mentioned are the zealots, and they were political radicals who were interested in defeating Rome militarily and establishing a Jewish kingdom in the state of Israel once again. Now, all three of those groups are mentioned. The zealots, not so much, but Jesus had at least one disciple who was identified as a zealot. Uh, although at the time he taught, the zealots were in a period of abeyance and were not active during the three years that Jesus was teaching. Now, the fact that the Essenes are not mentioned uh, becomes more explicable if we bear in mind one that the New Testament, as originally written, that is, the first documents upon which the later documents are based, especially in reference to the Gospels, uh, was an Essene document, basically. In other words, it was written by Essenes, or people who considered themselves Essenes, for other people who considered themselves Essenes. 
using the term in its widest sense, so that they saw no need to mention it. And second, that it was adopted by, it was later adopted and edited by people who had no idea of the state of affairs in Palestine up until the time of 70 AD. Because in 70 AD, the Zealots did rebel, and the Romans came in and crushed Palestine and Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, um, dispersed the Jews into the outside world. This was the date of the second and final diaspora, or dispersion. Brought in neighboring peoples to live in Palestine, the ancestors of the present-day Arabs, and uh, ended the Jewish ritual and the whole Judaic way of life as it had existed in Palestine forever. And of the of the various sects, only the Pharisees survived. The Sadducees had no reason to survive the temple destruction. They had nothing more to do. Um, the Zealots were totally wiped out. They had been their fault to begin with. They had brought it on. And the Essenes were also totally wiped out, as far as we know. The Dead Sea Scrolls were hidden at that time in order to save them from the Romans, but their monastery was obviously destroyed by the Romans when they came in. Uh, the Pharisees, on the other hand, who were not dependent on the temple, um, kept things going. They had already evolved a synagogue way of worship. They kept things going, and they did survive, and the Diaspora eventually developed the Talmud and the whole um, religion which is now called Judaism, and which now exists in several schools. And along the line, at the same time, the esoteric tradition, which may very likely have been taught in the Essene monasteries, uh, was preserved in what is called the Kabbalah, and then later other schools of Judaism also, in which um, we do have, again, many of the same ideas. <coughs> so, Bearing this in mind, we see that uh, rather than you know these people emerging out of the blue like a thunderbolt, which is the way that the Bible seems to be presenting it, and is probably the way in which the final editors of these documents saw it. St. Luke, for example, who we have just been reading from, was a Greek. He was a well-educated Greek physician who was a disciple of St. Paul. And when he went to write the Gospels, he was writing after the cataclysmic events that I just mentioned had happened. And he wasn't even a Palestinian to begin with. So he, he surely was relying on ancient records, records that had come down from before the change. At the same time, he applied his own understanding to these things, which is clear throughout the Gospel. And um, he, uh, as a result, transmitted some things that he didn't fully understand and explained some other things in a way that probably is not true. So we all know that Jesus lived in Nazareth. Okay, He's called Jesus of Nazareth. And everybody knows that Nazareth is his hometown. And if you go to Israel today, you will be taken, I understand, on a bus to the town of Nazareth on the Sea of Galilee. And that's where Jesus lived. The only trouble is that there is excellent reason to believe that there was no such city or town called Nazareth at the time that Jesus lived. That the town that is there now, there is no record of its existence back beyond, say, four or 500 A.D. It appears to be a post-diaspora town, which uh, the name of which in Hebrew is not necessarily as close to Nazareth as it is in English. 
Now, how, what does this mean? How could that happen? And how do we know that? Well, we know it because there exists some very detailed um, descriptions of all of the Palestinian cities around the time of Christ, as compiled by the Jewish historian and general Josephus, who was very familiar with Galilee. He mentions every town in the district, and he does not mention any town called Nazareth. The other thing is that the word, um, the connections with Jesus appear, there appears to be a connection with the meaning of the word Nazarene, which is how the early disciples of Christ were often called. As I said, they were, they called themselves the Ebionim, or Ebionites, the poor ones, but they were also called Nazarenes. And, uh, the connection with the ancient Hebrew concept of Nazarite is very strong. And the Nazarites, of course, were some people who were dedicated to the Lord, usually for a given period, in some cases apparently for their lifetime. Several of the famous Old Testament figures were Nazarites. Samson was one of them, although he doesn't appear to have lived up to his vows very well. Uh, Samuel was another, and he does appear to have done that. Among other things, they did not take any alcohol. They did not uh, cut their hair or shave. And, at least by the time of Christ, they apparently did not take any animal food. At least there are descriptions of contemporary Nazarites uh, to which that has been added. So we have a, a, a really confusing kind of evidence. But it helps us to see that when um, the word Nazareth, some people consider that it refers to either the district of Galilee or uh, perhaps a, a seen community or a monastery. Um, in any case, when someone says, as we will read in a second, can any good thing come out of Nazareth, uh, they may not be just saying, can any good thing come out of a miserable country town, you know, way off in the boondocks. They may be saying, uh, can any good thing come out of that particular despised cult? Anyway, bearing those things in mind, uh, as we proceed, we will understand better, I think, uh, exactly what we are trying to do by reconstructing um, the story of Jesus in the light of what we know from the Masters of Satnath. There is one other thing in connection with the hidden years. Jesus was, of course, there is no record whatsoever of his life um, for about a period of 30 years. According to Luke, he was 30 years old when he began to teach. That would be at the time of his baptism, his initiation. Then followed the 40 days period in the wilderness. Apparently, John the Baptist was imprisoned and put to death soon after that and Jesus began to teach. As we saw last week, he waited until John's imprisonment to do that. Um, however, from the time of his birth, until the time of his initiation of baptism, there is no record whatsoever except for the one account in Luke of his having gone to Jerusalem at the age of 12 and uh, argued with the um, theologians at the temple there. Now, there is an Eastern tradition which has been mentioned by the Masters that Jesus went to India at some point during this time. And in the Crown of Life, Master Kapal refers to this. He does not go so far as to say 
is to confirm that it's true from his own knowledge. He mentions it in a very positive vein and refers to a book, The Unknown Life of Christ, by Nicholas Nodovich, a book which I managed to find eventually. It was not easy, but after many years I did find it, and I read it with great interest. And it is an account written in the 19th century of a man who traveled in India widely and in Tibet. I don't know, he didn't actually get into Tibet, which was still impenetrable in those days, but he traveled in the Himalayan section of India. The first chapters of the book describe uh, Dehradun and Masuri, which of course places where I have been very minutely, and they were very interesting to me to read. Um, he ends up in a monastery, a Tibetan Buddhist monastery, with some sort of illness, I think a broken leg, and discovers um, that they have that one of their teachers is called Issa, and he knows that is one of the people to whom they venerate and to whom they refer. Now he knows that Issa is the term throughout the East that is used to refer to Jesus. Jesus is an English word which has no bearing whatsoever on the way in which Jesus was addressed during his lifetime. His name in Aramaic was Yeheshua, which is the a later corruption of the Hebrew word Joshua, which was not pronounced Joshua either. It was pronounced Yahashua. And uh, it means Savior. And in the Arabic language and other Eastern languages, that Yeshua comes out as Issa, which is at least as close to it as Jesus is. I think you'll agree. In any case, he picked up on that, and after a great deal of effort, he managed to uh, persuade them to show him a manuscript um, which he copied out, relating to the uh, teachings of Issa, who they he said had visited that part of the world. And uh, the second half of the book is, is his copy of that manuscript. I am not saying, verifying from any kind of knowledge, that this is a true account or not. The book is not implausible. It is not fantastic. The uh, teachings of Jesus, as presented in the, in the book, are very compatible with those of the Gospel. And which, of course, any fake could easily make also. Um, they show him taking on the Brahmins in very similarly to the way that he took on the Pharisees in uh, Palestine. And uh, um, it's, it's a good book. It's a nice, it reads well. It's interesting. And if it's true, then, of course, he may have had more than one teacher or guru and more than one initiation, um, which would not be the first time either. Whether or not that happened, though, it's important to recognize that these people did come out of a very full uh, spiritual tradition, which allowed for things like um, holy men, prophets, etc., expected them to come and understood the value of the basic spiritual ideas. And if we study the Old Testament carefully, we will find, for example, that the prophets all had disciples. They were called, they are called throughout much of the Old Testament, the sons of the prophets. And that all of the prophets had schools. The relation of Elijah to Elisha, or I should say Elisha to Elijah, is that of disciple to his guru. When Elijah was taken away, Elisha wept bitterly, it is said. And a description of Elijah passing his power 
directly to Elisha is given very clearly. Um, these schools later on when the prophets were writing down their sayings, uh, one generation would add on to what the original founder had said with the same authority. The book of Isaiah, for example, consists of at least three parts written over three widely varying generations, each of which was accepted as valid and as authoritative as the part before it. So that only the first third of the book is actually written by the prophet Isaiah known to history. The other two parts were written by other prophets, descendants of his, spiritual descendants of his who came later. They used also the name Isaiah, or they did not use their own name, exactly in the same way as Guru Arjun calls himself Nanak, and so forth. Um, sometimes that's been done. Many masters have written in the names of their masters. So, what happened to these schools? You see, if they did not, they were strong, thriving, existing. They even existed after the Babylonian captivity. And uh, I think it's very logical to assume that these are the schools that developed into what became the Essenes and the Gnostics, and eventually the Sufis. All of these represent the same basic ideas in the same part of the world, and uh, they're separated only in time, not in space. And we know that labels often change in the course of time. So the, the connection between them is very strong, I think. And in every case, we have the same basic idea of spiritual power being transferred from one person to another and the idea of the holy man from whom others learned. Begins, of course, earlier than, than the prophets, um, just the historical prophets, but we don't know much about the time of Moses and like that. It's hard to tell much in that way. All right, just to conclude with... Uh, wrap up the John the Baptist section uh, a little bit of his teaching is I think important St. Luke gives us the fullest picture of what John said to the people who came to him this was before um, according to Luke before he saw Jesus or before he was put into prison of course then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him O generation of vipers, this may seem harsh, but remember Master's account of Baba Khan and how, how his friend tried to get something from him and he got burned by wood and burning wood and various other things. Two, uh, some holy men are harsh, but as we'll see, John's approach was not always this difficult. Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance. Don't just say that you are going to be a good person. Show. Do it. And begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Obviously, a very important part of the Jewish religion was that if you were physically of the race of Abraham, this meant that you were chosen and saved. And John is saying, No, that is not enough. The idea may be true, but you are limiting God if you think that just because you were born to a certain race of people or to a certain family, that you are going to get anything from that. If to become a child of Abraham is what counts, God can make anyone he wants, including stones, children of Abraham, and he's going to do it 
unless you show yourself worthy of that which you have been given. This is a, a revolutionary teaching from the point of view of, of rabbinic, pharisaic Judaism, but not from the point of view of the Essenes, probably, insofar as we were able to tell. What was, what was different about what John was doing was that he was out saying it publicly to crowds of people who are coming to him, rather than quietly to a few people within a monastery. And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? How should we behave? He answereth and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath food, let him do likewise. Here, interestingly, Jesus later uh, modifies that thing about he that hath two coats down to he that hath one. He says, If any man desire your coat, give it to him, and not only that, give him your cloak too. In other words, not only your coat, but your shirt also, um, if he needs it. And he that hath food, in the King James Version it says meat, but you should realize that in the Elizabethan era, when this version was being prepared, the word meat meant food. When people wanted to refer to meat, they called it flesh in those days. And meat has since, it says something for our society, I think, that the term that originally meant food has come to mean flesh food only. Uh, throughout the King James Bible, that has to be borne in mind. In the modern translations, they do say food in those places. <coughs> then came also publicans to be baptized and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. The publicans, of course, you'll be hearing a lot about them, were the tax collectors. They were hated because they worked for the Romans. They were considered, by the Jewish nationalists, they were considered to be traitors. They worked for the despised Roman government and they imposed taxes on them and many of them were corrupt. They took taxes above and beyond that which they were supposed to take and they kept it for themselves, which was okay with the Romans as long as they gave them what they wanted. So John's advice to them is to keep on doing what you're doing, but to do it within the limits of what you're supposed to be doing. In other words, it is not a bad thing to collect taxes per se, as long as you only collect that which you're supposed to do. If, it's, if there is any sin involved in the other thing, it's not on your head. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. The soldiers, of course, were also Romans. The publicans were Jews in, in the pay of Rome, but the soldiers would be actually Romans. And uh, it's very interesting, both that they were coming to John in the first place, and that he would answer their questions, and that he would give them this advice, because, of course, a zealot would have said to resign from the army and have no part in the war. They could not do it and be um, saved. And John is saying, no, again, stay within the limits of of what you're supposed to do. Don't use your position to push other people around and don't uh, steal. It was easy, of course, for a soldier to steal. The soldier would do anything he wanted to in, in, in regard to the common people. He had weapons and armor and they did not. So no one could stand up to him except other soldiers. So he is presenting, in other words, not a revolutionary in the political sense, but a revolution in the spiritual sense, uh, which was contrary to the expectations of many people, as we will 
this was not what, for example, the Jewish nationalists, the zealots, the political radicals wanted to hear. They would like to have been told that Republicans did not count, were not human beings, and the uh, soldiers should be thrown out of Palestine entirely. And John did not tell them that. I, it's an important part, I think, of the teachings, the highest teachings, to, to realize that no matter what a person does, they may even work for the government and still be a human being. Uh, it's important to realize that because it's true. When we, when this ashram was first established, um, this was back in 1964. This master came here in 1963. And in spring of 64, I submitted a very bizarre uh, tax return in which I had almost no income at all, which was true. I hadn't had very much, and that's why. And uh, we were living here uh, at the time uh, very cheaply. And I had been out of work a good part of the past year and had been on a tour, in fact. As you know, we had managed to get some money almost miraculously uh, and were able to go on the tour with that. And that was how we had made it through. But, but our return was, was strange. So a, a, a man came to investigate. His name was Mr. Peterman. I remember him well. and You'll you see why. He was a very nice man. But I was... In those days, I was very much as an anarchist, and I did not like government employees on principle. So, and I also didn't like the idea of paying taxes on principle. So, when he came, I wasn't really nice to him, and I saw him only as a government figure, and I treated him like that. And he 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 remained smiling. He was absolutely indefatigable, and he. He asked me many questions. He walked around the ashram. He had a nice talk with Gerald, who was building his house up in the woods at that time. At the end, he came back, and I was sitting there glowering at him. And he, he came into my kitchen, and he sat down at my table. We were talking, and he looked up, and he saw a picture of the master that was on the wall. And uh, along with it was a, 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 a sort of a, a digest of the teachings that was included in the same paper that the picture was on. He said, who's that man? And instantly I thought, I knew something was a signal, uh, something was wrong. I, mean, that I realized all of a sudden that I had been wrong. And I said, my heart was sinking. And I said, um, that's, that's my master. I said, huh, what does he teach? And I had to tell him. I said, well, he teaches to be loving to everyone. <laughs> the, word, the words were choking in my throat as they came out. Nonviolence, truthfulness, and so <laughs> forth. And he he was he didn't act like like anything at all. He just listened very politely. He said, "Hmm." He said, "Well, that, when I finished, he said, well, that sounds like a master plan.'" And he was making a joke on the term master, but it was, he was very positive. He said, "You know, I saw his picture in the paper last fall. He was when he came, and I was going to come and hear him. My wife had something else to do that night." never did make it, but that uh, sounds very good to me. And I said, yeah. And we were talking, well, he never came back, you know, but it was a great lesson to me. I've had it at other times since then, too, that no matter what, and that's what, to me, when this, when the publicans came to John the Baptist 
in the same when Jesus uh, took them as disciples and went to dine with them and so forth. Okay, they were seeing him as human beings. You know, what publicans did for a living might or might not be the best thing. But what they cared about was the human being and also the human being not taking on any more karma on himself than was necessary. And the same with soldiers, the Roman soldiers, the hated soldiers of the opposition. We will be